0: What does God want for us when we grow up? We'll see today that God wants not necessarily a particular vocation as his highest priority, but his highest priority for us is a heart that seeks after him. We'll see today that God wants most for us a heart that seeks after him. And here's the main point of our text this evening. If you're taking notes, just one main point, and it's right out of the text. Man looks at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Man looks at outward appearance, but God, but God looks at the heart. Last week, as a result of a bad heart, we saw that God stripped the kingdom away from Saul. God took it out of Saul's dynastic line, and he was going to give it to a neighbor. Our, our text tonight picks up that very point. point, 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We've been looking at this book over the past several months. If not, you can find it in your bulletin. The entire text is printed there. And we'll begin looking at verse 1, and we'll just walk through this chapter in its entirety. Verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Well, Samuel's grieving. Samuel's grieving Saul's sin. He's grieving the effect of Saul's sin on Saul, on all of Israel. Last time, remember, we saw Samuel crying out all night to God. I wonder how often we grieve like this how regularly we grieve over the sins of others. It's probably easy for us to recall times we've grieved over physical pain, conflict relationally, maybe family trouble. But do we mourn the church discipline in our member meetings? Do we weep over the person in our life who's left the faith? Well, here's a question we should ask ourselves. Do I grieve more or gossip more the sins of others? When I encounter those around me in my life who are sinning, do I grieve more their sins or do I gossip telling others of those sins? I wonder what grieves you. If it's only the threat of your debt, a loss of reputation, or personal conflict, What does that say about your heart? Well, Samuel grieves Saul's sins and its effects. It's important to grieve. And yet, at the same time, we grieve... But here the Lord also says, Samuel, wipe those tears away. Those tears are okay, but wipe them away and let's go. I'm about to do something. Now The Lord's not rebuking Samuel for his grief. It's good to grieve, but there's a time for grieving and there's a time for action. Samuel's been grieving and now the Lord says, okay, it's time to go. Time to get going with kingdom work. And in verse 1 there again, Samuel, he says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Well, Bethlehem is there in the southern kingdom of Judah. And we remember back in Genesis of the promise that the ruler's staff will not depart from Judah. God is going to raise up a king from there. But this is no mundane command. Verse 2, Samuel has some reservations. This is not so simple, Lord. You want me to go to Bethlehem? where Saul is recognized as king and you want me to anoint someone else as king. If Saul hears of this, surely he'll have me killed. And yet the Lord is gracious. He doesn't say, Samuel, you scaredy cat, you're a wimp. Just do it. No, he says, this is what you do. Go get a cow. And when you get to Bethlehem, tell them you've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Don't give everyone the whole story. Now, is this divine deception? Is God condoning lying? Of course not. First of all, it's not a lie. Samuel is directed simply not to tell the whole truth. He really is going to offer a sacrifice. That's just not all he's going to do. We often withhold some truth. We rarely tell the whole truth about everything in all situations. You don't go up to everyone and tell them all the things you think about them in that moment? And what about when someone comes up to you here on Friday and asks how you're doing? We don't share every single detail about our lives with every single person. Of course not. There's not even time for that. And we hold back some truth depending on the situation. It's wisdom. It's discernment. Well, this is not sinful deception here. God is protecting Samuel. He's with him in his fears. Well, this should encourage us. God is with us in the little details of our lives. Samuel, it's going to be okay. Take the sacrifice. And when you get to Bethlehem, find Jesse. When Jesse was, was Boaz and Ruth's grandson. Go to him. I have a, a, a little surprise for him. Well, God doesn't really tell Samuel much, does he? Doesn't really tell him how it's going to turn out. Abraham, go to a land that I will show you. Moses, I want you to get your people here out of Egypt, out from Pharaoh's rule, and I want you to go towards the Red Sea. Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem, go to Jesse. We're going to find ourselves a king. God tells us what to do, but he doesn't often tell us what he'll do. If you notice this in your, in your life, God tells us how to be obedient to him. God tells us how to follow him, but he doesn't often tell us what he's going to do. We may know the introduction to the story, but we hardly ever know the conclusion. What will happen if my child doesn't make it into that school? What if my diagnosis is cancer? What if my chronic pain doesn't ever go away? We don't know the future. All of us wonder about health, about money, about marriage, about kids, about our career. God says, go to Bethlehem. Find Jesse. I'll show you the way. You do what's in front of you today. This is what God asks of us. You be faithful with what I've given you today. You give generously and serve faithfully today. You read your Bible and memorize scripture today. You commit to purity. You do your work in excellence. You pray with your kids. You be nice to your spouse. You disciple someone. You share your faith. You eat dinner with your neighbor. You change your baby's 10th dirty nappy of the day. You do all of your homework. You study for the next exam. You go to the next sports practice. You get up and you work and you provide for your family. You wake up and you pray and you spend time with the Lord today. You do what God has for you today and you do it by faith. Like Samuel, you don't need to know the future. You just need to do the next right thing. A writer and theologian, John Murray, was in kindergarten. He would Always get worried. Five-year-old little kid would get worried, and, and he would say to his mother at bedtime, what ha- would happen if, if you or, or daddy die tomorrow? And his mom would often answer and say, your job, little John, is not to worry about tomorrow. Just do your job today and be faithful. And your job right now is to go to sleep. Do that faithfully. Murray lived the rest of his life with that in mind. What's my job today? How do I honor God today. I had a teacher once tell me that life is like snow skiing, like skiing down a very tall, very high and steep slope. You're at the top and you're afraid and you're a bit scared. You're looking down at the bottom and you think there's no way I can make it to the bottom of that mountain. My teacher said, you know how you make it to the bottom? Well, don't look down there at the bottom. Just look at the snow right in front of you. Don't look at the bottom. Just ski the snow in front of you. If you keep skiing the snow directly in front of you, what's going to happen? Well, eventually you're going to make it to the bottom. Well, friend, be faithful today. Trust God today. Trust God one day at a time for the next 10,000 plus days and you'll get there. Ski the snow in front of you. This is what Samuel did. Verse 4, Samuel obeys. It's the next right thing to do. God says, go to Bethlehem. Samuel goes to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, we read, is actually afraid of Samuel. Why? Well, I don't think they were used to getting a surprised visit by God's prophet. Perhaps they're gearing up for a stinging rebuke or some troubling news. Samuel calms their fears, says in verse 5, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, And invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6 When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Even Samuel, Even this great prophet of God is instinctive like the rest of us. He sees the captain of the Bethlehem high school football team, a man who looks like Saul. And even though he knows Saul's heart, he thinks, this one, this one has got to be the king. Man looks at outward appearance, but God Looks at the heart. The Lord doesn't see as we see. Our temptation is to look at outward appearance, isn't it? I mean, we're tempted to look at outward appearance and looking for a spouse or electing elders, hiring employees, or even developing friendships. Samuel sees Eliab and thinks this is the one. His fingers are already halfway down in the horn of oil. He's ready for the anointing. Wait, wait. Samuel, just wait, wait. Hold on, just Maybe put the oil away and and wash your hands. Eliab's not the one. Verse 8, Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these but at some point along the way, Jesse and his family figure out what's happening, that Samuel has come to anoint a new king. And one after another, Jesse parades his sons before Samuel like a beauty pageant with God as the judge. And with each son, Samuel thinks, surely this is the one you're looking for. You know, Eliab goes by, Abinadab, and, and then Shema. Surely it's got to be Shema. But it's not. And then the fourth son, and the fifth son, and the sixth son, and the seventh son. And to each one, Samuel says, no, 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 no. Seven times. I mean, Samuel, no offense, O great prophet, but I think you've made a mistake. Then Samuel says, Jesse, is this it? Maybe I've, maybe I've come to the wrong house. Perhaps there are two 34 A streets, and maybe Google Maps has taken us down the wrong road. That happens from time to time. Are you sure, Jesse? Is this all of your sons? And Jesse says, "Well, there is one more, the youngest, but he's out taking care of the sheep out in the field." That your word for youngest also has the idea of being unimportant doesn't even come to Jesse's mind to get the son to present him to the prophet at the sacrificial meal. Why didn't Jesse mention him? Was he embarrassed by his smell? Was he too young? Did he just forget? Well, we don't know. Samuel says, send for him. We're not going to eat of the sacrifice until he arrives. Now, Samuel knew how to motivate obedience. No son, no shawarma. No son, no dinner. We're not going to eat of this meal until I meet this shepherd kid of yours. Verse 12, he arrives. He's ruddy. He's got beautiful eyes. He's handsome. Now, Ruddy is the Hebrew word for red. It's the same adjective used of Esau. He had good eyes. He was handsome. Now here handsome has the idea of good or benevolent. There was something notable about him. This isn't the same idea of handsomeness for Saul or Eliab. You you notice the extra words in describing Saul or or Eliab. This This isn't a tall, dark, and handsome kind of idea. Well, just to be clear, though, as we think about God passing over these other sons, just to be clear, Saul and Eliab weren't rejected because of their looks. And David wasn't chosen because of his Now, God doesn't love who the world deems as ugly more than he loves supermodels or vice versa. He doesn't love the sort of handsome Davids more than the head-above-shoulders Saul's. Now, hear me say this. Outward appearance doesn't qualify you or disqualify you from service to God. Let me just say that one more time. Outward appearance, it doesn't... Qualify you or disqualify you from being used by God. We don't exclude or judge those the world discards, and we also don't penalize those the world embraces and adores. You well, know, God has better eyesight than we do. He has a spiritual eyesight that cuts to the heart. Now it's not about outward appearance, it's not about age. Well, David is the youngest son, he's probably. Maybe a young teenager at this point. He's just a boy. Maybe a preteen or a young teen. And friends, God can use young people. You met my friend John Dyer just a couple weeks ago. My best friend led me to Christ. We had that faith and technology conference in this very room. And you heard the story of how as a 16-year-old, John decided that he was going to share his faith with all the rest of us. And I turned to faith in Jesus. Oh, youths, if you're here in this room, know that the Lord can use you. You can make a big impact in your school or church. In fact, us older people need to learn from you. Teach us something. Be an example to us. Oh, church, age is never a determining factor in maturity. I do hope as we get older, we learn a thing or two. But the truth is, 60-year-olds can be less spiritually mature than 20-year-olds is why we want elders in their 20s, and we want elders in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. We don't just want to be an ethnically diverse church. We want to be a generationally diverse church, and we want mature people across all the ages. We want mature people from from young children to the elderly. In fact, here's something I would love for you to pray for. I would love for us as a church to pray that one of our current teenagers, at least one, that one of our current teenagers would one day serve as an elder in this church. I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful that God would raise up future elders in this church, even from among our children and among our teens, even now? What a joyful day that would be. And let's pray that the Lord would bring us more saints in their 60s and 70s and 80s and beyond who love Jesus. And can teach us from their lives. You no know, man looks at outward appearance one way or the other, but God looks at the heart. Oh, appearance isn't everything, it is something, but it's not everything. Oh, godliness is more important than giftedness, humility more than ability, character more than charisma, and the heart more than the skin. Oh, church, are you consumed with growing in your character? This isn't normal, is it? I mean, we don't go up and down Jumeirah Beach Road and find godliness clinics every 100 meters. I mean, where are the character clubs and the spiritual heart centers? But we do find clinics focusing on physical appearance, don't we? I heard a story a few years ago by the late screenwriter and movie director, Nora Ephron, who talked about our obsession with, physical appearance. And she said some of her friends are starting to feel bad about their necks. They literally worry about what people think of their necks. And she talked about how her friends were starting to wear jewelry and wear clothes that would hide or cover up their necks. It's because our faces lie, but our necks tell the truth. We work hard at lifting our faces, putting on makeup, coloring our hair or our beards, but our necks eventually collapse. There's nothing we can do about it. You can't lift your neck. Now, industries built on delaying the effects of aging will continue to be around because we as a people are obsessed with maintaining physical beauty. Now, it isn't true that ugliness is next to godliness. It's not a proverb somewhere in the Bible. It's a good thing to look nice. It's okay in appropriate ways. But the point, our hearts... Are infinitely more important than our skin. And that's a fact. Man looks at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Well, friend, when God looks at your heart, what does he see? Does he see a man or a woman after God's own heart? Redeemer Church, are you consumed with having a heart like God's? This is why I love our elders so much. More than almost anyone else in my life, they are models to me of hearts that seek after Christ. I had heard of Benoît Samuel for years. He was a seminary professor in India an aspiring pastor and church planter. And I met him at the mall for coffee. And he expressed his desire to learn and to grow and to do an internship with us. And now years later, this brother and still an aspiring church planter in India has never stopped learning. He's never stopped taking input. He's never stopped asking for feedback. His humility encourages and builds up my heart. One day, another leader in this church told me that I needed to spend time with one of our newer members, Daniel Mowundu. He said, this man loves the Lord and is a future elder and leader in our church. And so I ran to Daniel as fast as I could, and we started meeting every week to study 1 Timothy and to read the book Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And what I saw in this man was a man who'd exuded kindness who never spoke an ill word about anyone, never gossiped, never slandered, but sought to build up me and the church. His encouragement and and, and love for me and for others blesses my heart. Uh, Scott Zeller and his family were serving in Delhi, India, and they had to leave because of Scott's health, and so they came and they spent a whole weekend staying in our flat back over in Deera. Little did they know that Those three days together was a long job interview. And I was able to to watch him and watch his family. And as we talked about life and talked about the church, I saw a man who was passionate about the gospel and for the nations. His zeal encourages my heart. And I met Butch Lim when he was a new believer. Over a decade ago, he had come to faith. And what I love about Butch is, here's a great man by the world standards, the chief engineer of one of the best hotels in the Middle East. But what I love about Chief Butch is how he serves the Lord behind the scenes, how he's a servant. His servanthood encourages my heart. And Eric Zeller, here's a man with a Ph.D. in the Bible, He's literally written over a thousand words summarizing the 66 books of the Bible, and that's not even counting his dissertation. And here's a man who loves spending hours and hours studying God's Word so that he can then go teach others. His passion for the Bible encourages my heart. And our other elder candidates, now Andrew Furman came on a scouting trip several years ago. He came to one of our Vision Dubai trips. And here's a man who was talking about leaving his new and profitable career back home to come here to serve the nations, which is the opposite of why people come. Everybody comes to Dubai because they they have a better job or or a great job or career advancement. Andrew was wanting to do just the opposite. And I love how he's come here out of a passion to see the gospel go forward in the workplace. His heart and desire for faith and work encourages my heart. I met John Botchen years ago when I started noticing that he was attending every single golf training center intensive we had. And I looked at him and I asked myself, who is this guy? But he kept wanting to learn and learn and learn. His hunger to learn the Bible encourages my heart. And many of you have just started to get to know Morgan Renu and his family. First met him two years ago. Here's a man who spent his entire adult life serving in, in one particular church. And then one day, another pastor from Dubai came to Australia and shared about the ministry here happening in the United Arab Emirates. And the Lord began to grip his heart and grip his wife, Liv's heart. And they thought to themselves, this is all we know here in Australia. But the nations need Jesus, and so we're going to go. Well, their faithfulness to follow God's call blesses my heart. Oh, well, friends, man looks at outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. I want to be like these men when I grow up. This is the kind of man God looks for. This is the kind of man God was looking for here in Bethlehem in our text. One son after another son after another son. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm looking for that man who loves me. I'm looking for that man who has a heart that's going to seek me. And you notice after seven no's, as soon as David arrives, probably without a shower or without a change of clothes, no deodorant to eliminate the smell of sheep, he walks in. And immediately the Lord says, now there's no interview process, there's no weekends staying in your flat, there's no questions being asked. As soon as David walks in, immediately the Lord says, arise, arise and anoint him for this is he. One scholar calls David a kind of male Cinderella, left to his domestic chores instead of being invited to the party. He'd been out with the sheep, excluded from the celebration. This is how God works, doesn't he? Reuben was the oldest. I'm going to use Joseph. Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Ephraim and Manasseh, it's often the younger one, it's often the the weaker one who God uses. The Apostle Paul understood this, for God's power is made perfect in weakness, for when I am weak, then I am strong." God sees what no one else sees. David's out with the sheep. Maybe he's thinking, hey, I'm out in the middle of nowhere. All my brothers, they're out there celebrating. They're with dad. I'm stuck here with the sheep. No one sees what I'm doing. No one sees what's going on in my life. No one feels what I feel. No one knows what I know. No one even notices. Maybe that's how you feel right now. Maybe you feel like you're serving at work or serving here in the ministry at the church in obscurity. Maybe you feel like Nobody sees. Well, if that's you, friend, I want you to know God sees. God knows. Keep going. Keep being faithful. Keep skiing the snow in front of you. Keep taking the next step of faith. Notice David isn't ambitious for advancement. He doesn't seem to be keeping his eye on what's happening at home. He's not trying to be famous. Oh, Teens and tweens, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, here's some wisdom. Don't try to be famous. That shouldn't be our goal. Don't try to be famous. Try to be faithful. Don't try to be famous. Try to be faithful. Try to be zealous for the things of God. See, David, he gets interrupted from being faithful. He gets interrupted from faithfulness to be great. He's tending the sheep out in the middle of nowhere. Oh friend, if God wants to use you for great things, he'll get you. If God wants to use you for greatness, I promise he knows where to find you. You be faithful. You be faithful and let God determine how he will use you. In verse 13, Samuel takes the horn of oil. This time he gets his hand all the way in and he anoints David in front of All of his older and stronger brothers. From that day forward, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Now, this is not the indwelling of the Spirit yet. That's a promise we see in Ezekiel that the Spirit will indwell us in the new covenant. The Spirit will live inside of us. That's not yet here, but in the Old Testament, we do see that the Spirit will often equip people. The Spirit will equip people people to do great things. David has the spirit come upon him, and at the same time, we see that Saul has a harmful spirit come upon him. And the word harmful here in verse 14, it can refer to a disaster sent as a judgment of God. In this case, the spirit is sent to undermine Saul's effectiveness. No more strength. Saul won't be effective anymore. In fact, it's going to bring Saul great distress. It reminds me a little bit of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's disobedience leads to a closing off from the things of God. And so we find Saul here depressed. He's despondent. But his servants have an idea of how to help him cope with the pain. Music. Let's get a lyre player. Let's get a lyre. Let's get the string instrument. It's a small harp. A lyre, a little instrument. In the ancient Near East, it was thought that Music had magical powers. Music's wonderful. I love, really, I really, really, really enjoy when we come together on Fridays to sing. I love listening to music throughout the week. Music is a wonderful blessing, but it's not a good permanent solution. Music isn't going to fix Saul's heart. Now Saul should have gotten some better advisors. It's like Saul needed heart surgery and they handed him a couple of Panadol pills and a glass of water. But Saul thinks it's a great idea. Verse 18, one of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Saul likes the sound of this. They bring David over, a gifted musician, an upstanding man, a man of war. we don't know exactly what that means. It may refer to his family background or it could speak of his ability, not his experience. We see later that that David was, was quite the warrior because of his experience. Well, he's also wise in speech, a man of good presence. And most importantly, and I think in summary of the description here, we see that the Lord was with him. Even Saul's servants could see that Yahweh, Israel's God, was with him. Ironic, isn't it? Verse 21, Saul loved him greatly. He became his armor bearer. He would cheer him up with music. But there's a real irony here. David, anointed future king of Israel, starts out by serving the very man he's going to replace. And Saul invites him, not knowing the future, invites him into his presence, into its personal service. Saul summons the very one who now has the spirit of God rushing upon him. Ironic indeed. But God is always at work in ways we can't see in the moment. He's been working in David's life behind the scenes for years. He's been serving his daddy by tending to the sheep. Now he's serving Saul. Well, this man's service is preparing him to be a servant in incredible ways. And one day this servant boy would be king. This servant king would point to another a greater one. A thousand years later, another king would come as a servant. And one night his disciples, they were gathered in the upper room. You may remember this story from John chapter 13. They're gathered in the room for dinner and there was no one there to wash the disciples' feet. They're all looking at each other, wondering what's going to happen, who's going to do this, and there's no servant there to do this. And so what happens? Well, Jesus, he gets down there on his knees, and one by one, this servant washes each of his disciples' feet. It's a breathtaking scene. In other ways, Jesus was quite ordinary, a carpenter. He made things out of wood, the son of Joseph and Mary. He had no beauty or majesty that would attract us to him. He didn't have much power or At least it didn't look like he did. He never tried to get a seat with the religious leaders in his day. He wasn't trying to be popular. Not only was he not strong, but he gets beaten. He gets flogged. He gets stripped. He gets spat on. And worst of all, he gets taken to a death on a Roman cross. Or worse than a servant, as a criminal, he's crucified and killed. But messiahs don't suffer, right? This can't be the king. Well, David was forgotten by his father, but even worse, Jesus was forsaken by his father on the cross. It was there on the cross that he took on the full wrath of God upon himself, and he took the sins of all of his people. And he served the father, and he served us by dying in our place as our Atoning sacrifice. It was the greatest act of service this world has ever seen. Salvation for his people. And on the third day, we've been singing about it already. On that third day, he burst forth from the grave in victory, proving that his conquering power had been sufficient for his people. No well, friends, the only thing that can change our hearts The only thing that can give us a heart after God is to see Jesus as the most beautiful servant in the world. Only way to see a heart changed is to look to Him and have our hearts melt. That God came to us, that Jesus had it all, but riches He heeded not. And He left the throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and He left that throne, and He was born as a baby. A weak individual just like you and me in a little town called Bethlehem in the city of David. Oh, he's the one who gave up his outward appearance. He gave up his reputation to bring us into the kingdom. Redeemer Church, what do you want to be when you grow up? We have some freedom as to what that is exactly. Exactly. And while God is concerned about what you do, he's most concerned about who you are. Man looks at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And Redeemer Church, may our hearts be consumed with Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death on our behalf. Would we be marked by the same heart? Would our hearts be filled with humility and grace? Would we not look at outward appearance, but at the heart? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.